let's go ahead and take our Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I want to talk to you this morning on the subject of the end game of missions. The end game of missions. And uh, I will tell you right up front, this isn't going to be a, a stereotypical missions message. Uh, in fact, uh, one of my goals is to blow up a few myths. And I think it'll be a source of encouragement for you because this doesn't just affect us in the area of missions, but also in our personal uh, soul winning and evangelism efforts. And some things that God has to say that I think are overlooked and underappreciated that are just extremely important. So I want to start out by looking at something that we typically understand when we talk about missions, and it's found in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now this is what we typically understand as the Great Commission. If we were to go to Mark 16, and, and we won't for the sake of time, he says, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature which dovetails right in with this. You go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus talks about the disciples going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. So we understand this Great Commission in what way? And I, I really think over the years, in, in almost 50 years of being a Christian now, in 44 years uh, in the ministry, I have found that Christians understand this in different ways. And how we understand it makes a big difference in how we think about it, what we do about it, and how long we last in this pursuit. And I think you'll see where I'm going with this before we get very far. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, help me to uh, now to uh, bring across a point that I think is important. Uh, Lord, this may or may not be homiletically pleasing. Uh, the outline may or may not uh, alliterate, and uh, Lord, it may or may not win any preaching contests. But I, I'm sure not concerned about that this morning. I, I'm concerned about one thing, is that we understand in your mind and through your word what the end game of all of our evangelistic endeavors really are. Whether it's personal evangelism, one-on-one, -on -one, handing a tract to somebody, trying to win one of our relatives to Christ, uh, down on the job, in the jails and prisons, out on the streets, and then, Lord, in far-flung places and cross-cultural settings as we support and send missionaries to these other places as well. Help us to understand, in the end, what it's really all about. And Father, how much easier it is really to succeed than we suspect. And uh, so help me to say the things that are necessary and uh, just take a walk on the stuff that uh, would just 
cloud the issue, that would just get in the way, that would just confuse. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So how do we understand the Great Commission? Well, here's, here's one way we understand the Great Commission. To get the gospel to everyone that we possibly can. Fair statement? To get the gospel to everybody we possibly can. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be insulting by stating the obvious, but I, I, I have to. Because some things morph sometimes into things that weren't intended. Uh, and let me show you something here. Uh, go to Colossians chapter 1. I, I'm going to just suggest a possibility here. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I'm going to suggest a possibility that that actually happened in the first century by virtue of something that Paul says here. He makes a statement here that looks like that might have happened in the first century. And that is, get the gospel to everyone. Uh, Colossians 1, and uh, take a look at verse 5. He says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where have you heard before, in the word of the truth of the gospel. So the subject is the gospel. And then he says in verse 6, Which is come unto you. Now notice this next phrase. As it is in all the what? World, and bringeth forth fruit. <clears throat> as it doth also in you, and so forth. Now, is he saying all the world in broad terms, or is he suggesting every creature heard it? I don't think you can prove it one way or another, but <laughs> I'm going to suggest to you that if it ever did happen, it happened in the first century when the population of the world was much smaller and we've read all kinds of things about the first century church and, and the zealousness they had toward uh, giving the gospel to, to all the world. So uh, that may have happened, but, but I think we understand it in broad terms, get the gospel to everybody that's it, 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 it's possible. And uh, folks, that's always a worthy goal. To by all means possible, get the gospel to other people. Uh, let's just take us as a church. Talk about different outreaches. Jail. Uh, a prison. Uh, why are some of our guys so enthused, some of our gals so enthused about jail and prison ministry? Because you're dealing with people that usually know they're sinners. <clears throat> One of the hardest things you have in your soul winning efforts is to Talk to somebody who really thinks they need the gospel. Well, most of these people in the crossbar motel, they know they're sinners. And so it's a pretty fruitful ministry. Uh, out on the streets, door to door, a rescue mission, nursing home, uh, Operation Jericho, those letters going to homes with the gospel, track racks, take those gospels with you and just... Hand them out everywhere you can. Our bookstore. Signs, our sign ministry. I remember the first time I had uh, a sign put out in our front yard years ago. My neighbor came by, and he looked very happy, and he said, You're selling your home. <laughs> and then he looked at it, and he goes, You're not. <laughs> um, bumper stickers. 
I tell you, I, I've told you before, I get more people ask me questions over that one bumper sticker that says, if you can earn it, why did he die? I really recommend that. Put whatever you want on the back of your vehicle, but that one gets the most conversation from people ask, what does that mean? Uh, radio, live stream, the church sign right out on the interstate here, veterans home, campus ministries. Uh, we got a young man here that's on the campuses here at BSU uh, all the time once school starts, and we could go on and on. Um, how about this one? <coughs> the Great Commission means get the gospel to everyone you can. How about this one? Here's what some people think, and I thought this for a while. We have to get everyone saved. We have to get everyone saved. And, um, and by the way, the Bible says God's not willing that what? Any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish. That's why, I'll say it again, I, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can study till the cows come home about Calvinism and, and rack your brains and turn yourself inside out with all kinds of theological skullduggery, but for me, it's real simple. When I read my Bible, Genesis to Revelation, one time, I cannot imagine, no matter who came up with the idea, that God in eternity past decided that the vast, vast majority of people would go to hell. And then he would dangle Christ in front of them and say, whosoever will, and say, just kidding. I'm sorry. That to me is not the God of the Bible. That's the God of a Christo-religious philosophy. And we'll leave it at that. But that's a worthy goal. Get everybody saved. But how realistic is it? What did Jesus say? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be that go in thereat. Isn't that what Jesus said? Did Jesus tell us the majority of people will not be saved? Okay. And then he said, narrow is the way that leads to life, and what? <coughs> Few there be that find it. Now, I don't think the Lord is going to tell us that and then say, okay, now I expect you to win everybody. And if you don't, you failed. And this is where I'm going with this today. I think we need to blow up a few myths that I think are harmful some myths that overwhelm us and some myths that I think have made a lot of people just kind of give up. Both in their personal witnessing efforts because if you've done any amount of soul winning, any amount of witnessing, any amount of attempting to reach out to others uh, to, to trust Christ, you realize that the majority of your efforts are not going to end in somebody getting saved. But does that make it a failure? How we look at that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, let me give you an example when it comes to missions. And again, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't question the motives of people that, that use these tactics to try to motivate us. But 
I believe they're counterproductive. I, and, and I've heard mission boards do this. And unfortunately, even sometimes when guys are preaching on missions and getting us all motivated, here's one. I don't know if you ever heard this one. The, the missions discipleship formula. If from the first century, each person that was saved would make one disciple a year, and then that disciple would make one disciple a year within 40 years or so. I can't remember the exact number. Some, somewhere between 37 and a half and 45. I don't remember. But within less than a half a century, the whole world would have been one to Christ. If everybody just would have done their job. Um, I have a question. Could we start over? Because <laughs> I think we're way, way behind. In fact, we're hopelessly behind. Oh, and by the way, that doesn't take into account that not everybody wants to get saved. Brother Williams and I were talking over a cup of coffee here the other day and really appreciated that message he brought Wednesday night on prophecy. Encouraging. The Lord is coming soon, folks. The Lord is coming soon. And uh, we, we agreed that some of the tactics to get people lathered up about missions can be counterproductive. Here, here's, here's a more recent one. The 1040 window. Uh, the, the, the parallel between 10 and 40, uh, either side of the equator. And that's where the m majority of people that are unreached live. And, and when you get hearing about it, you almost get the impression that if we sent anybody to the Arctic or to South America, we blew it. That along with the fact that the population of the world is increasing. Last statistic I read, it was 7 0.9 billion. Does that sound right? 7.9 billion. How many of you remember when it was always 6 billion? You could roll that number out any old time. But now it's 7.9. And so the population of the world is growing, and missionaries are retiring and getting older, and we're falling behind, and there's more unreached people groups, and we get guilted into this sense of failure. And oh, I got to do more and more and more. It almost sounds hopeless. Almost sounds like we're trying to fill the Grand Canyon using a, a Homer's bucket from Home Depot. The orange one? The five-gallon one? And we're going really fast, but it's evaporating before it even gets wet down at the bottom. What is the end game of missions? Is it that we're supposed to win everybody? Well, then if it is, we're failing miserably. Can I talk about the gorilla in the living room? Hey, and, and you know what? <clears throat> I'm looking at just these flags here. Wish we had a big mirror where you could just see these flags. Maybe you want to turn around. Some of you got some of you are real. Brother Rudkin, I'm gonna get you a bunch of business here, okay? 
they're all going to turn and look back at these flags, and they're going to be seeing you this week. Um, there's South Africa, population 59 million. I'm going to round these off. I'm not going to give you the point thirty-one. Uh, the UK, 66 million. By the way, we've got 22 flags out of 193 recognized countries in this world, along with two observer states. One's the state of Palestine. The other one's the Holy See, uh, the Vatican, as they call it. Uh, there's Puerto Rico, three, three, three million. Uh, Wales, a little over three million there. And then <clears throat> Australia. Everybody knew that was Australia. And just under 26 million. Sweden, 10.3 million. Spain, 47 million. That's a lot of people in that area. Switzerland, just under 9 million. Belgium, right, up, right bumping up against 12 million people. And uh, languages, there's, there's 7,151 languages in the world. Can you guess what's the most spoken one? English. 1.13 billion people. And of course, we're only, you know, we're, st <laughs> we're under 500 million people. We're, we're not even a half a billion people, but many people in the world speak English. And... Um, Number two, number two, believe it or not, is Mandarin Chinese, right behind English at 1.12 billion because of the size of China. Uh, Spanish is in there number four at 534 million people. I'm just giving you some of this because just the, the, the magnitude of this. Uh, we, have, we have South Korea here, uh, right at 52 million people. And then, and then Brazil, 212 million. No wonder they always have a good soccer team. Guatemala, just under 17 million. Hong Kong used to be its own country. Now it's been absorbed by China, but uh, right at seven and a half million, and they're, they're speaking English um, and Chinese. So these are, we got 22 of these here. Now, who would not recognize Japan with the rising sun? 125 million on, on those, those small islands there. Uh, Scotland, somebody said to me, Scotland's part of the UK. Don't tell us Scott that. <laughs> You'll hear bagpipes, and they won't be playing Amazing Grace. <laughs> My wife is Scott. I know this by experience. Um, Iceland, <laughs> 366 million. Call your country something else. No wonder you only got, <coughs> excuse me, 366,000. No wonder you only got 366,000 people. You call, hey, come to Iceland. Hungary. Just under 10 million. Paraguay, 7 million. Peru, Peru, <coughs> 33 million. 
Honduras, right at 10 million. Italy, right at 60 million. And Israel, only 9 million. And then this flag right here, huh? So that's 22 out of 193. What is the end game of missions? We're not there yet. And the Bible gives us a very clear answer to this. And I want to I give you a couple of mottos that I think are encouraging mottos. Because it's, it's how I feel about this. And I read these and they jumped out at me. In fact, it was on a sheet of about 100 different mottos that Carol scared up for me on the internet. <clears throat> Here's two of them I really like. Punching holes in the darkness. I like that. That's something we can do. Treasure Valley Baptist Church can punch a hole in the darkness. Not, God's not asking us to get rid of all the darkness. Just punch a hole in it. And then what Jesus said to the Philadelphia church, I have set before thee an open door. And you know, if God sets before us an open door, all we can do is just go through it. And that's all we're responsible for. We're not responsible for all of it. Uh, brighten the corner where you are, the song says, doesn't it? And uh, let me dash a couple of extremes here. You know, I think some people get discouraged with missions because they hear stories. And, and, and it's true, sometimes all kinds of effort and money and resources and people pour themselves into a situation or a country and, and, and it just seems to come out ashes. Just a handful of people get saved. History is replete with some of our greatest missionaries, uh, Adoniram Judson in Burma and places like that, who a man like that spent his whole life and had, had I've got more fingers on these two hands than he had converts that he could point to before he died. And yet God used his, his work in a great way later on. You see, how he looked at that was important, or he may have quit. He may have quit if he would have thought that being numerically unsuccessful meant failure because it doesn't. What is God looking for? He's looking for, he's looking for faithfulness. So a lot goes into this. And then sometimes Christians get what I call the mission's halo complex. Well, you know, the money I give to go to foreign missions, that's all spiritual money. Because everything's perfect on the mission field. Missionaries don't walk. They levitate and they float. They don't eat food. They don't have washing machines. They don't drive cars. They don't live in houses. They don't need air conditioning or heat. They don't have medical bills. They don't get their teeth fixed. Or chiropractic. Because they just float around winning people to Christ 24-7, 52 weeks a year, Every year till the day they die. So that's where I'm putting my money. I call that the mission's halo. 
You know, I've seen the warts here in the United States. So that's where I'm putting my money where it's perfect. Well, I hate to dash that little myth. But it's not. They're people. They're people. So how do we understand all this? Yes, God wants us to bring the gospel to as many as possible. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know what God's heartbeat is? Look at John 3, 16. It is the heart of a missionary. And he wants us to witness to as many as we can. He wants us to bring as many to Christ as we possibly can. But how we understand success or failure determines our morale in this process and the longevity in the pursuit. And that's why I believe it's so important to understand the end game as far as God's concerned. And I never hear this preached in a missions conference. I've mentioned it in missions conferences, but from now on when I preach in a missions conference, we're going to talk about this. And I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 5. And the thing that sparked this message this morning is this is a thought I've had for a long time, inspired by these scriptures I'm going to show you, that when Brother Williams went to him Wednesday night to talk about prophecy, to talk about the return of Christ, it wasn't that encouraging. By the way, the tribulation is Jacob's trouble to bring Israel back to God, but it's also God prepping the world for the second advent. You say, what do you mean? How many of you have studied anything about the Second World War and know that when we were, when we were attacking some of those islands like Iwo Jima, before the guys went in, in amphibious assaults, that the Navy would just pound those islands and pound those islands and pound those islands generally from five to seven days from offshore before the men went in. Do you know what the tribulation is? <clears throat> That's God pounding the island before he sends the troops in. When Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 comes in with ten thousands of his saints. That's what's going on during the tribulation. And by the way, and I mentioned it, I mentioned it Wednesday night, I'll say it again. Some of you are old enough to remember back in the 70s and 80s when it seemed that Christians were more excited about prophecy. And I think part of the reason was it all seemed like it was out there. You know, the Antichrist is going to do this, and the world's going to get like this, and ooh, it's going to be bad, and, and, and now it's right here. It isn't quite as interesting. In fact, it's really getting annoying. The morals, the ethics, government, People in general. You know, one of the things the Bible says about the end times is people are going to be fierce. Do you ever notice how people are going out of their way to make themselves look ornery? 
by way of clothing and styles and the way they just carry themselves. It doesn't seem as interesting that way, does it? That's why I'm glad Brother Williams did what he did. Hey, folks, the world around us is falling apart, and now it's not out there. It's right here. You know what that means? As James said, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And I'm telling you what, this COVID caper sure made me glad I'm not going through the tribulation period. I mean, I, I got to read a pretty good book on, on the subject of the Spanish flu right around the time of the First World War. This was a Saturday afternoon barbecue compared to what they went through there. And those two combined, what we went through here in 2020 and what they went through around 1914 is little to nothing compared to what's going to take place in the book of Revelation, when God unloads the vile judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. Folks, we've seen fear. We've seen government control. And folks, it's nothing in this country compared to a lot of other countries. Worldwide, over something that is nothing alongside of what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. What am I saying? The devil's tuning up the orchestra. And it means that the main crescendo is coming. And it means that Jesus' return is very, very soon. Because it's not out there anymore. It's right here where we live. And James says, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. Now, let's get to the end game of missions. Go to Psalm chapter 2. Stay with me here, please. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. I think sometimes we make the mistake of trying to guilt ourselves with, with, with overwhelming statistics that really aren't our burden. And it may be easier to please the Lord than we suspect and that might be an encouragement to us this morning. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's what all this nonsense about trans and all this other junk is and, and the bathrooms and what's a woman and what's not a woman. And yeah, men can have babies. Yeah, right. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Can I say something to you, Christian? Especially you've been spending too much time with talk radio and Fox News and conspiracy theories. Will you quit freaking out? Look what God's doing, verse 4. He's laughing at them. They're talking all this woke, radical craziness in the colleges, and God is laughing at them. They can't pull it off. They're not going to turn up into down. They're not going to turn left into right. They're not going to turn male into female. They're not going to turn right into wrong. 
God's moral and natural laws are absolute. And God's laughing at them. So quit walking around like a deer staring into a set of headlights. The devil's not going to win. This crowd is not going to win. God wins. The Bible says the Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. He said, I don't care what you do. I don't care what the UN, the usual nothing says. I don't care what you vote in or don't vote in. I don't care how the war uh, in, in the Ukraine ends up or who claims what. I'm running the show. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. End of conversation. You don't even get to vote about it. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now I want you to, I want you to see this. The father talking to the son, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. In the middle of all this, the father says to the son, Ask, son, and I'll give you, I'll give you the Gentile nations. As a gift, as a present. You think I'm, I'm stating it too far when I say present? I'm not. Let me show you what the Bible says about it. Go to Isaiah 18. Go to Isaiah 18. What we're going to see tonight, what we're going to see this morning is the end game of missions in the eyes of God. And when we see that, you're going to see that it's a whole lot easier to succeed than you ever suspected. And I'm not going to try to guilt you this morning with a bunch of overwhelming statistics because every time somebody does that, I want to just get out of my seat and choke them. But it's not polite to choke somebody when they're preaching. And it's not Christian love. I understand. It's not Christian. Even if you do it in Christian love, it's not Christian love to choke somebody. So don't get the wrong idea here. Look at verse 7. Uh, Isaiah 18, verse 7. In that time shall the present be brought unto the Lord of hosts. And what is it? Of a people scattered and peeled, and from a people terrible from their beginning hitherto. He's talking about his, his Israel. A nation meted out and trotted underfoot, whose land the rivers have spoiled, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, the Mount Zion. They're going to come back, and, and, and the father says to the son in in Psalm 2, while the heathen are raging and saying, we're going to do it this way, we're going to do it that way, and we failed at the Tower of Babel, but we're going to do it again, and the Antichrist is going to gather them all up at the Battle of Armageddon, and he's going to lose again, and then, and then God the Father says in the middle of that, ask me, son, and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance. I'll give you the Gentile nations, and here in verse 7, there's a present brought of the Lord of hosts, and it is the apple of his eye, the nation of Israel restored. So what is the end game of missions? Go to, go to Revelation chapter 5. And this is where we're going to end this thing. Revelation chapter 5. And it goes back to the Moravians back in the 18th century. And the story of those two boys, those two teenage boys that sold themselves literally into slavery 
to go to an island that an atheist slave owner owned with, with it was between three and 400 slaves working sugarcane. And he had said, no missionary will ever come here. He had refused any missionary. He owned the island. He said, no missionary will ever come to this island. And so these two young Moravian men, uh, they sold themselves as slaves. They put themselves on the block and they were bought as slaves to go there and, and never return home again. And as, as, the ship, as the ship was sailing out and the, the, the Moravian community that, that they had grown up in and, and their parents with tears running down their face knowing they'd never see them again, those two young men locked arm in arm on that boat, raised their outer hands and, and yelled across the water, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Those Moravians understood something that modern-day Christians don't. Let me tell you something. Yes, missions is about winning people to Christ and having compassion. If some have compassion, make a difference. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. But if missions is about winning everybody in the world, it's a hopeless cause, and we might as well go home and forget it because it isn't going to happen. Let's just be realistic. Now, look, I'm all for the slideshows that show you needy people. And if it makes you feel bad for them and makes you want to give more money to help them, then fine. But you know how long that's going to last? until the emotion wears off. Amen? That's how long it's going to last. You know what every missionary finds out? If he goes there under the illusion, oh, those people are so much better than Americans. They want the gospel, unlike Americans. Six months over there will clear up that misnomer. Oh, they're so nice and innocent and childlike. Brother Dennis, are they pretty rascally? Are they just as bad as Americans? <laughs> Worse. Okay. That's him. I didn't say that. Now look, I'm not discounting any of that. And all of that as a motivation to do what we do is fine. But there's a bigger overarching motivation that, believe it or not, in the eyes of God is even more important than that. Can I let you in on another terrible truth? Do you know that God, that, that you being saved and going to heaven and not going to hell is secondary in God's mind when Christ rose from the dead and defeated death? That is secondary to something else that's a bigger picture that if the bigger picture didn't straighten itself out, our salvation would be meaningless. And you know what that primary thing is? That, that Jesus defeated Satan. And in the end, God wins the war between him and Satan. That's even more important when it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that's even more important than us not going to hell in the eyes of God.
And by the way, it should be just as important to us because guess what? If we get saved and we're on God's side and God loses, then who's going to end up in hell? I'm talking bigger picture. And the same thing applies to missions and the same thing applies to our soul winning efforts. Look at chapter five of the book of Revelation. Here's the end game. Here's the end game. And, and what I'm going to give you is the reason a missionary like Brother Williams, who, who has never seen the numbers in New Zealand, a missionary in Scotland who will never see the numbers, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, a missionary in Singapore, <clears throat> in, in the, the, heavy, the, the largest uh, Muslim population in the world, is not in the Middle East, it's in Singapore. And missionaries like that that we've supported that in 40 years have been able to start two churches with about 20 people in them. <clears throat> and, and this, what I'm going to show you is why these men have not failed. And these men should not be discouraged. And we should not begrudge the investment in these. <clears throat> and then you got mission fields like the Philippines and India and take uh, Europe during the Philadelphia church age and thousands and thousands and thousands getting saved. Is one successful and one a failure? No. Absolutely not. Not the way God looks at it. Revelation chapter 5. Let's look at it. Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of my, the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of old odors. And, and which uh, are the prayers of saints. Now watch this, watch this. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. Now watch this. And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations, and hath made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. I mean, this is a massive choir of millions and millions singing with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as in the sea and all that therein and heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever and the four beasts said amen and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever and in the midst of all that are the redeemed are the redeemed verse 9 look at it now out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation God never said we'd win everybody in every country God knew that in some countries you'd be doing good just to win a few and in some periods in church history you'd be doing good just uh, just to, to to win a handful he said to one church there in his his message to the seven churches in revelation 2 and 3 he said i know where thou dwellest where satan's seed is he said i understand what you're up against but you know what the present that the father wants to give to the son the heathen nations israel and this huge choir And in this huge choir are people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, there may be more from India. There may be more from the United States. But there are going to be some from Singapore. And there are going to be some from New Zealand. And there are going to be some from Sudan. And no matter how much time, effort, energy, lives, and money were poured into a nation. And it may look, listen, if you were a businessman, you'd look at that and say, that's a bad business proposition. But to God it's not, because this present he wants to give his son, worthy is the lamb. He wants people of all nations to be singing his son's praise when it's all said and done. And that's the end game of nations, uh, of missions, as far as God is concerned. That's the end game. He wants that for his son, folks. Because worthy is the lamb. And may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. Look at Revelation 7. He he practically repeats this in Revelation 7. And I remember the first time I saw this, this was so encouraging to me. I realize, God, because I listen to all this stuff, you know, oh, we're not keeping up, and the world's growing, and we don't have enough missionaries, and hurry up, run faster, go harder, sweat better, and it's hopeless. Hey, folks, do all you can in your own personal witness for the Lord. Have you ever won one person? How about this? Do you suspect that maybe before you go home to be with the Lord, just because you've handed out some tracts and you tried, even though you didn't see anybody won, you think maybe because God says his word won't return void, you still might have won one person? You didn't fail. You didn't fail. You didn't fail. You don't have to be Brother Andreessen. Brother Andreessen is a soul-winning maniac. Sometimes I think there's something wrong with him. 
Every time at prayer meeting, uh, pray for this guy. He got saved yesterday. Oh, and the other guy that got saved 20 minutes ago before I came. And this other guy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for those kind of guys, huh? But maybe you're not that guy. But maybe when it's all said and done, you won one. And he's going to be standing there singing the Lamb's praise. And as far as God's concerned, that's the end game. You say, well, I can't, I can't win my dad to Christ. Win somebody else's dad to Christ. Say, I can't win my cousin to Christ. Win somebody else's cousin to Christ. Maybe while you're winning somebody else's cousin, someone else will witness to your cousin. I can't win my brother or sister to Christ. Go win somebody else's brother and sister to Christ. And then maybe someone else will witness to your brother and sister. What am I saying this morning? Don't give up. Success in the eyes of God is well within reach. Man is the one that makes it complicated. Man is the one that puts heavy burdens grievous to be borne upon us. And not always intentionally. Look at chapter 7. Look at verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. Look at this phrase again. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And what God's end game is, is we're just contributing to that great multitude. God never said we win everybody. He never said that. Never said we had to. And he didn't say we were falling behind. Okay? Nobody's falling behind. There's no catching up to do. And if generations previous to us fell behind, I can't make up for that anyways. I can only do what I can do. And you know what? God's a lot easier to please than most of us think. Don't make God austere because he's not. He's not. He's not. We filter, and, and, and by the way, I am a very stoic person, believe in discipline and all that stuff, and sometimes I project my way of thinking onto God. No misunderstand. I'm not saying God's a loosey-goosey, but I'm simply saying we, we, can, we can raise the bar so high that it's discouraging. Christ is worshiped. Why is Christ worshipped? You know, when you think of it, what's, what's life all about? What's the world about? What's the universe about? What's history about? It's who's going to be worshipped in the end. That's even what war is about when you really think about it and get philosophical about it. And, and why is Christ worshipped in the end? Why is that the end game of all things as far as the Father is concerned? Because it shows the ultimate value of salvation. Of what he purchased for us. And nobody else has done anything near it. Celebrities? <laughs> they haven't done anything, but you know they're worshipped. They're worshipped. Kardashians, are you kidding me? Athletes. Really? 
enjoy their talent, but most of them are some of the most one-dimensional people you'll ever meet. And yet they're worshipped. Politicians, presidents, yeah, they can do some good. It's temporal. It's temporary. Medical science, that gets a little closer to home. Thank God for the guy that, that invented antibiotics, amen? Which really didn't get into circulation until after the Second World War. That's how Teddy Roosevelt lost his life. They didn't have him going by then. But even at that, that's just this life. Captains of industry and technology. Some people would say, oh, it's Steve Jobs. He's the man. He gave us this. <laughs> I watched more people yesterday. I don't know why I noticed this or I just saw more of them than normal. But I saw more people yesterday doing this. Standing with their head hunched over like this. And I, again, I, I'm not picking any, but Brother Rudkin, you're going to have more business, okay? Okay, they're going to need chiropractors. One guy was crossing the street like this. They don't even look. This is the generation that got out of a bus that had the stop sign and stopped all the traffic. How many of you old enough to remember when your parents told you you got to look both ways? They just get out, they just walk across the street like this, and you're supposed to look out for them. Well, that's fine until the guy coming in the car is drunk. Then they're going to put the guy in a casket like, like this. For some people, yeah, he's the guy that should be worshipped. No, folks, in the end, worthy is the Lamb. And it's what everything is all about. Whether it's politics, economics, sports, education, civics, you name it, it's all in the end coming back to worthy is the Lamb. Why? Because he did the one thing of greatest value. Think of the one who led you to Christ. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is what? Wise. Think of the one that led you to Christ. Think of the one that led your loved one to Christ. Think of the one that you can lead to Christ. That is the person nearest to Christ. Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Bible says in the book of Daniel that many that turn, uh, those that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars. They'll shine as a firmament. I'm not suggesting worship, but I'm just saying those are the stars. Isn't that what they call them, stars? Huh? Movie stars. Some athletes are stars. You know what God says? Soul winners are stars. Why? Because they're doing something really important. Everybody else is just entertaining you. Or pick in your pocket. Brother Williams talked about getting a track over there in Kentucky or Tennessee. Uh, twice since I've been saved, I've been witness to. Once I was handed a track, and another time in a department store, a young man started witnessing to me, and I couldn't believe it. And I played along with him for a while. I really did. I said, what's that all about? And he's telling me. I said, you sure? Yeah. Well, tell me more. We sat down. He went, and I, finally, I just I, I started laughing. I said, thanks, brother. That's a blessing. That probably wasn't right. I kind of let him on, disappointed him. But it was just nice to get witnessed to by a stranger. Hey, 
My dad, my dad will witness to anything that, that's, that's, that's breathing. I never would have thought when I first got saved. But that's how he is. You know what, folks? The most valuable thing we can do is just try to get somebody saved. And it doesn't matter if you win a bunch of people to Christ or you don't. All we're doing is contributing to that great chorus, that present that the Father intends to give to the Son. In the end, lift up your head, your redemption draw nigh. He's coming, folks. He's coming. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your mission's giving is, is, is money that's an investment in heaven. And your individual soul-winning efforts are not in vain. Don't be overwhelmed this morning. Don't be overwhelmed. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. You say, well, this is going on in the government and the economy and all this other stuff. God said it was going to happen. Quit crying. Take the opportunity to witness to a bunch of lost people who don't have a clue what it means. You see, that's what the devil wants us to do. He wants us to stand there and wring our hands. Because prophecy was so interesting when it was out there. All the bad stuff was going to happen out there. Now that it's right here, we're running around. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And God is saying, lift up your head. Your redemption draweth nigh. Tell them about Jesus. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I just pray something from your word would stir our souls here this morning to go on for you. Encouraged, Lord, that even in this crazy world and crazy country coming apart at the seams, you are more than in control. You said this was going to happen. You knew this was going to happen. And we still have great marching orders. And we can succeed. We can succeed quite easily just by being faithful. Just by being faithful. Help us to be encouraged today and not overwhelmed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What number, brother? Seven, wonderful grace of Jesus. 127. Let's stand and sing this song. Amen. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its phrase be? Higher than the mountain.
the fountain, all sufficient grace for even me. Broader than the scope of my transgression, seeing it greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgression, sing it greater than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled. By its transforming power, making him God's dear child. Purchasing peace and heaven for all eternity. And the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Wonderful the matchless grace of mighty rolling sea, higher than the mountain, sparkling like a fountain, all sufficient grace for even me, broader than the scope of my transgression, sing it greater than all my sin and shame, oh magnify the precious name of Jesus, praise his name. Brother Gip, I saw you around here somewhere. Where are you hiding? Would you come on up here and close us in a word of prayer? All right. Thanks for being here this morning, and thanks for being willing to go over time a little bit. Father, it is good to be saved. Crazy world, God. It's a crazy world. And um, they don't want to hear from you. They just want the benefits. They want the king without the kingdom, or the king without the king. We thank you, God, that this is all about you. It's not about, it's not about, it's not about us. It's about you. Thank you, Father, for our pastor pointing it out and, and emphasizing that we're doing things ultimately to your glory. And God, if we could do something that you could glory for, that would be so good. So, Father, let us leave here today and do something that edifies people and that gets you some glory because you deserve it. You are, as the Bible says, of all the words that describe you, worthy is the greatest because you're worthy of all worship and all praise and all glory. So help us all do something that you would get glory for. And if we do that, God, we will be successful. We pray this, God, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.
Amen.